0: I can sit in a room with somebody for 15 minutes and know if I've got a winner or not. And 99% of the time, I'm right. So I listen to the gut. And I listen to the person, I listen to the plan. I know it's gonna work or it isn't. I just know. I'm that good.
1: This episode is brought to you by AKA, a collection of luxury serviced residences specializing in longer stays in places like New York City, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, DC, and London. It's nice to have a full-size kitchen, room to spread out and have our production meetings, with all the luxuries of a hotel, and still feel the comforts of home. You gotta check them out.
0: Hey, Mr. Wonderful here from Shark Tank. Yep, Kevin O'Leary, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition
1: of Behind the Brand. Today, I'm here with the one and only Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, welcome to the
0: show. Great to be here, thank you.
1: I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, life is serendipitous. I really believe that. And how the outcome occurs is, you know, everybody has a path in their career they plan on, but it generally doesn't work out that way. There's a series of events that happen to you along the way, and you don't know as they're happening because you only realize how important they were maybe a decade later when you realize it was a huge pivot point for you. Mine was when I was working in a summer job in college for um, a pet food company. And I had a German manager, a really interesting guy, and he taught me that most pet foods at that time were made from Sea of Japan tuna and chicken faces and beef lips and rendered you know protein using mango juice to crush it up. Sounds horrific but those are two basic engines and then they would add some peas or you know some carrots and they would create cat food flavors. Decades later when I was in the software industry I realized that you know we we're the leader in math and reading software and here's where this story comes into play um, all my competitors were spending a fortune building unique applications to advance reading and math scores. Those are the two big things you actually create software to advance if you're in education. And I thought to myself, that's crazy. This is really just Sea of Japan tuna, and chicken faces. All we need are two engines and we'll just add characters to them. And that was how the learning company became the largest software company in the world in reference and education. We sold it for $4.2 billion, but that manager gave me the idea to synergize around two development groups. So We'd, 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 you know, we'd buy a company, fire everybody, and just take the characters they had and we'd cut our costs dramatically. You know, Our cost of R&D were half the industries. Everybody was complaining, but how are we doing it? We're doing it because we understand that that software is no different than cat food. That's
1: amazing. Uh, it also sounds, and I want to dig deeper into this, like what you're good at. It sounds like you're really good at identifying patterns. It sounds like, you know, that was a model or a template that you used, but also pattern. Before you go into that, I want to go back in time a little bit to young Kevin. Kev.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I want to talk about, you know, your early origins, you know, your,
0: your influences. Like, what did you want to be when you grew up as a young kid? What, what were you thinking about? Well, when, when I was growing up, um, I was born from immigrants, an Irish and Lebanese, an Irish father, Lebanese mother, and it, by the time I hit seven, it was clear I had some really big problems in math and reading, going back to the education, because I had a really bad case of dyslexia, and so in, in those days, dyslexic, you know, uh, outcomes were bad because you really fell behind in school, and they didn't really understand how it worked, and luckily, I was very fortunate, my mother was desperate, she was trying to find a solution for this because I was falling behind really quickly in those critical years in in early school. And so she found this woman named Marjorie Gallick who had an experimental, Sam Rabinovich and Marjorie Gallick were researchers, they're published all around the world now, but they basically thought they could take dyslexic children after school, maybe 12 or 18, and put them into an experimental program where they try and convince the kids that dyslexia is actually a superpower that other people don't have, so that your confidence really advances. And that's, that's what they ended up doing with me. They said, look, do you know anybody else in your class that can read a book upside down in a mirror? No, you're the only guy that can do it. That's a power. They wish they could do it, they can't. And so that started giving me the confidence because dyslexia doesn't really retard learning. It just makes the, the, the incumbent tools in schools useless to you. I mean, nobody gives you a book upside down in a mirror. You have to learn how to deal with what dyslexia does. And that, once I had that solved, it was a very interesting acceleration that occurred. And you find in business today, all kinds of founders of companies like the guy that founded JetBlue, a really bad case of dyslexia. I think it, it, it helps you think outside of the box. And I've always thought business is half creativity that comes from the chaos of the arts and half the discipline of science. Business is binary, you either make money or you lose it. I think great CEOs, great entrepreneurs combine the chaos of art with a discipline of science. And and I believe that to be the case and I look for that in the people I invest in now. And I think that dyslexic, you know, chaos for me was was a pivotal point and a catalyst that I could build some of my, you know, direction off.
1: So were your parents really involved with giving you like some guidance like you should go into law or you should go into, you know, this or that. Did they give you specific directions?
0: Not in those days. What happened is around that time my father who was only 37 years old, died. And so that was a very traumatic moment. And my mother remarried about two years later, um, and my new father was a completely different character than my my biological one. Uh, he was finishing off his uh, master's, or and then his PhD at the University of Illinois in Champaign Urbana, and he joined the United Nations. And we started moving uh, every two years to a different country. So I've lived in Cyprus, Cambodia, Tunisia, Ethiopia, um, Japan, England, Switzerland every 24 months. I mean, I, I met, you know, Paul Pot while he was a lieutenant for Sihanouk in Cambodia. I met Haley Selassie and his lion cubs before he became a deity. These are just random outcomes in my life, but it's certainly later, as I always say, you don't know these things are happening to you, but they are for a reason, and it, it made, it's made me a relatively successful international investor because I was able to see trends. I mean, I lived in Cambodia, I saw when the French and Germans were going into real estate there to follow them in. I knew exactly what the industries were in Ethiopia and and what you should invest in. Cyprus, I already saw the banking system and the oil business growing there and I was an investor there. So there's all kinds of, of cues you get from your youth that you should really apply to your business later. And that was a remarkable experience, and certainly he was a major influence in my life because when I graduated from high school, I wanted to be a photographer. And I was really into photography, and I had my own lab downstairs, and I was doing all the things I loved to do. And he said, you're not good enough. You're not good enough to be a photographer, and you'll starve to death. You should go to college and get a degree. And um, I listened to his advice because I thought he really understood. And, and I went on to do an MBA, which ended up being a very important tool for me later. But I went back into production my first company was special event television which produced all of the programming for the East Coast hockey feeds Bobby Orr in the hockey ledge and Don Cherry's grapevine we would shoot it all week much like we're doing right now and then edit it and send it up to a satellite in the you know mid 80s and I was an editor, a producer, a cameraman. I used to work with Nagra's and we had a Steenbeck editing table. I did it all. And I, and I was trying to get back to the thing I loved, which was photography and production, and make money doing it. And, and there was that science and that art coming together in my life. And we sold that company because Don Jerry's Vapevine became a very successful television format. And that was my first transaction. We, we sold the company, the three founders, I took that money and started the software business that eventually got sold for $4.2 billion. Things happen in life. You don't know why. And you only get to look at them in retrospect a long time later. But all of that stuff you know, made me what I am today, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and I wouldn't change a thing. What I pulled out from that as well as it seems
1: like all that moving and all that you know, uprooting and going somewhere else, you had to sort of adapt or die right like you had to really sort of I think it's a Bruce Lee quote right like yeah you know you have to be like the water in the vase you know not the vase you have to conform to whatever shape that you are poured into it sounds like that's kind of what you did and also it sounds like that experience also made you very scrappy or resourceful right like so you were battling with dyslexia um, you're also you know dealing with probably different cultures and different foods and different languages You you had to be resourceful and creative and you know uh, be that water, yeah?
0: Yeah, that's a very intuitive way to look at it and you're right. I didn't like living in, in, in places like Cambodia, Phnom Penh. I didn't want to be sequestered with the expats. That that was not interesting for me. I wanted to live with the people and we ended up with a couple of tutors. We used the Calvin system then, which is a, a system that is sort of a direct male learning system, and better than nothing, right? Uh, trying to stay advanced in, in, in high school years, but uh, T Bandang were were a couple of um, you know people in my life then that were very influential, and I had a French tutor. She was from France. She spoke a little English, yeah. and she tutored me, um, you know, at home and in, in where we lived in Cambodia. And I and I slowly got immersed in that culture, which is a beautiful culture. Cambodian people are almost mystical, and they're beautiful. And I didn't want to hang out with. Everybody from Champagne, Urbana. I want to hang out with the Cambodians, and that's what happened. I took my kids back there a couple of years ago to show them where I grew up and to take them into the jungle and see how Cambodia works, and that's a unique experience for them. They were blown away. They'd never even thought about it. So to me, it's all those experiences, and I certainly in Cyprus uh, hung out with Cypriots. You know, in Ethiopia, the Ethiopians are the most remarkable people because you're living a mile high. They're very tall. They're very lanky. They're beautiful. They obviously win almost all the marathons they get involved in. So I got into that. I didn't have a bicycle, I rode a horse. I mean, the first barbecue I ever did with my Ethiopian friends, the sky turned black with vultures. They'd never smelt burning meat before that way. We had a thousand vultures circling. And I looked up and went, oh shit, (laughs) what's happening here? And that was the kind of thing you learned. I was showing these guys, here's how you have a cookout. Here's a barbecue. And they said, we don't think this is a very good idea. (laughs) And I think now, you know, it's a great resource for me, as you say, in thinking about how to do things a little differently, particularly in global businesses. I'm involved in global financial services now. I just came back from Dubai last week and Manila. You know, I feel very comfortable going to those countries. I've been there before. There's nothing new or mystical about it for me. And I think people feel that in you and they appreciate it. I would agree with that and I think
1: that's a really good lesson I want to just underscore for the people who are watching. I know a lot of them work internationally. Um, unfortunately, I think a majority of the tendency, you know, we go into a country and we just sort of snowplow their, their culture and they, we ask them to speak our language. and um, Big mistake. I, it's a big mistake, yeah. yeah. But just, um, you know, culturally, I think traveling internationally really rounds you out, right? Yeah. I mean, I've done a little bit of travel myself and just being in a different country, you
0: realize, oh... There are different ways to do things, yep. uh, and they are good. Yeah, and they also, if you respect their culture, and, and you can make reference to your history, and they appreciate, you know, when I go to Cyprus, people knew I went to the, the British school there, and then I went to the Cypriot school there. And, and I know the street names, and I know where Famagusta is, and Carina, and the beaches, and Trotos, and all the places where the current population hangs out. And I've been there, been going there for 30 years. That is a huge financial hub. People don't realize how big and how many transactions occur in the Cypriot banking system because that's where sort of the East meets the West. Russians are very active there. There's a ton of capital from the Middle East there. It's sort of like a neutral ground, but a very important place to have relationships.
1: Yeah, I know the good lesson. I mean, you know, when you show respect, you get respect. Um, and I'm sure that's a big part of your success. I want to pivot a little bit and um, talk about how money has or has not changed you?
0: Sure. My first lesson, which is, you know, encrypted in my DNA now, was the idea of working for, you know, pay. And my first job uh, was in high school. And um, I got it specifically because there was a a girl in in my grade that I was really interested in, and she got a job at the shoe store in the mall. And I was able to get a job across in the ice cream parlor. And my plan was, you know, when the mall closed down, we could go out you know hang out together which was a good plan and so I told her look I got a job across the way and my first day on the job I'll never forget it you know she was in the window putting in the shoes there it's a small mall um, and I was in this ice cream store scooping ice cream and when people you know my first day it was owned by a woman I'll never forget it she says look when people ask you for a sampler here's a little wooden spoon give them a little sample But what happens when that occurs? You know, when people do samples, they take their gum out of their mouth and they throw it on the floor. So all day long, gum was piling up on the floor, Mexican tiles in this place. So the first day is over, and she said, "You did a great job. You you know, you sold four thousand dollars of ice cream, whatever it was. But now you've got to finish up, and you've got to take all the gum off the floor." Now, at that moment, the girl I was interested in was looking at me, waiting to see when I was going to walk out of the store. And I realized if I get down on my knees and scrape gum, I'm I'm in trouble here. This is not a good look. I said to her, look, you hired me as a scooper, not a scraper. And she said, no, no, I hired you as an employee. You do whatever I say. I own this store. Whatever I say, you're going to do. And I said, no, I don't think so. If you want to hire somebody to take gum off the floor, that's a different job. If I would known that, I probably wouldn't take this position. She said, how about this? You're fired. And I went, whoa, what's that mean? She said, it means you get back on your bicycle, go home, don't come back here. I'll send you for your today's pay. I was so humiliated when I got home and explained that to my mother. She said, you should have done what she asked. And I realized right then, and this is the important lesson, this is one of those pivotal moments. In life, there's two types of people. There's the people that own the store, and there's the people that scrape the shit off the floor. And you have to decide, which one are you? I'm not saying it's bad to be an employee, but she taught me such an important lesson. The humiliation of not controlling your own destiny is evident in that story, because that's the way I read it. I thought, this is horrible. Whatever she says I have to do, I'm not going to live my life that way. I never worked another day in my life for somebody ever again. Now, decades later, I can afford to bulldoze the whole mall if I want. And I go back there to meet her because I wanted to thank her for that, that moment for me, that amazing moment where she just reset my whole dial, all of my DNA. I just didn't want to scrape stuff off the floor ever. I wanted to own the store and I couldn't find her. The, the store was gone. I looked, I hired somebody to find her because I wanted to thank her and help her out for making that moment happen to me. But there's a story that that tells you a defining moment for one random person deciding what path they were going to take. Entrepreneurship for me, I've never looked back. You know, I could probably buy a whole bunch of malls now if I wanted. It's not that important today as it was back then, but that's what happens.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great lesson. Um, I often ask my guess you know how do you know what you're good at how do you know where to find your passion because you know the sort of the default advice is follow your passion and that may or may not be good advice but I think the point that you sort of crystallized for me is sometimes you have to do stuff that you uh, don't like doing to figure out what you do like doing.
0: That's a great point that's an absolutely great point and you want to do that early in your career to understand What motivates you? The perfect situation. I mean, I tell entrepreneurs today, and I invest in so many of them, you know, when I say to them, look, you're starting this journey. I want you to understand something. This is not going to be fun all the time. You're going to work 25 hours a day, eight days a week, because there's some guy in Mumbai or Shanghai that's going to kick your ass if you don't. And it's forever. And it's forever. But what will happen if you're successful? And you won't see it coming. You'll wake up one day and and say, oh, my goodness, I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. You'll probably go right back to work, but the point is you created something of tremendous value. And the, and the way it manifests itself to you later in life is it, it gives you freedom to do whatever you want. My, my number one message to entrepreneurs and I teach today is never pursue entrepreneurship for the greed of money. It has nothing to do with it at all. The whole reason to be an entrepreneur is the pursuit of freedom. That's why you do it. You do it because you want to be free one day to do whatever you like. I'm here because I want to be here. I don't have to be here. I don't even have to ever, ever listen to a phone call again if I don't want to. That's not what I want to do. I, I enjoy spending my time doing the things that I want to do. And I, and I deserve it because I worked like hell to get here. And so I'm a huge you know, advocate of capitalism. I defend entrepreneurship every day. When people say you don't deserve that, I say bullshit. I deserve everything because I started with this. Everything I have... I created myself, and I deserve what I have, and I, I, and I feel ferociously about that, and I tell other entrepreneurs, do not be embarrassed about success. Wear it. Own it. It's yours, and you deserve it. So how has
1: success changed you, if, if any?
0: Like it, your personality or your... There's certain things I really enjoy about, you know, being able to, 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 to pursue them. For example, photography. I own every single camera that I want. Every lens that I want. I work with all the manufacturers to shoot with their cameras now because they want me to. I'm going uh, to Botswana next week on Safari. I have some of the most eclectic lenses ever made because the people that made them want me to shoot with them and I'll sell the work for charity. I achieved what I couldn't do back then, you know, and I'd say to my dad who's still alive, my stepfather, look at this. (laughs) And he says, Look, this is a passion, it's not a business. I said, but I'm doing it is the whole point. So that's freedom, that's a wonderful thing, and that's because of what I've achieved. I collect watches, some of the rarest watches in the world, as an asset class, and I get access to them because I've been successful. Well, so that's lifestyle stuff, but how about personality stuff? Like,
1: has it made you uh, jaded, or has it made you more optimistic, or, uh, talk
0: about how, you know, the emotional side, or the emotional risks
1: of wealth, because...
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, one of the biggest challenges, well, let, let's go to telling the truth in business, because Shark Tank's a great place to show this as an example. People, the show's been on for, it's going to the second decade. It's, we've we've it's created iconic. tens of thousands of jobs. We've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. We've had phenomenal successes, catastrophic failures. We've had it all. But the, the point is when people come out there and you hear an idea, And you've had a lot of experience in that space, perhaps. That's the great thing about Shark Tank. Each one of these investors is a self-made millionaire billionaire. They've done it themselves. It's not like they were given anything. And so you have to respect that opinion. This is like a venture capital firm on steroids. These are real operators. A lot of VC firms hire a bunch of bean counter MBAs, and they try and analyze stuff against the market. That, that, to me, that that ain't the real thing. The real thing is one operator to another trying to figure out what the path of least resistance is. That's what Shark Tank is, but you have to make a decision. And I have this fight with Barbara all the time or Lori. You're listening to the pitch. You know the chances of success are practically zero. They're burning their family's money. Why not tell them the truth? Why not say the idea has no merit, it's bankrupt, it's going to zero? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means the idea is bad. And maybe you want to take this life example that you've learned and try something else. You've made a mistake. That's okay. The sting of failure can be the greatest motivator for an entrepreneur. And, you know, Barbara would say, I don't want to hurt their feelings. And I say, well, then you're just going to give them bullshit. You're going to lie to them, and that's disingenuous. You should burn in hell for that, Barbara. You, Lori, all of you. I'm the only one that tells the truth. And everybody says, I'm the mean guy. I'm their best friend. I'm the only one telling the truth. And I'm never going to change on that. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Well, <laughs> the point is, in business, it's binary. You either make money or lose it, right? And I say in a startup, if you can't make money within three years, it's just a hobby. It's not a business. It's going to go to zero. So what you're saying is, if we pull,
1: peel back some of these layers of the onion, of Mr. Wonderful, this is this is at your core. You really your intentions are great. You want to save them time and money, blood, sweat, tears. You just want to. You have this experience, this hindsight, and you want to say, "Listen, I'm going to tell you right now today, this is not working. Just you know, cut bait and do something else." And it comes off as kind of you know being a hard ass or whatever, but. You know, at the heart of it, you're really trying to do them a solid.
0: Well, I want every entrepreneur to be successful, but that's not going to happen. The truth is, eight out of ten businesses fail in America within three years for one singular reason they're never able to get their customer acquisition costs below the lifetime value. You know, fancy way of saying they blow their brains out advertising because they can't get traction, they can't get viral, they can't get people to their site or their business in an economic way. And I'd rather deal with that, and I think I want them to be successful, but the market's a very competitive place. The barriers to entry today's world economy are practically zero. And so you need a great idea. You need a certain type of motivation. You need a team, most often, that helps each other and augments the weaknesses or helps mitigate them. And, and you know, I look at it that way, and I've got you know 39 portfolio companies. And any one day, that phone's going to ring, and it will today sometime, with some euphoric outcome. Something amazing happened to one of my companies and some disaster is happening to another one. That happens every single day. That is the ebb and flow of life as an entrepreneur, and I'm used to it, but if you're just starting off, it's very hard to stomach.
1: Yeah, and there's there's a lot of questions I want to ask within that. Um, one of them is this burning question that I always think about, which is, you know, are entrepreneurs born, or is it something we can learn? And maybe frame or answer it in the context of what do you look for, you know, when someone goes on shark charting? Are you looking at that individual, their personality, or the way they present, and how are, how are you sort of judging them? Aside from the numbers, let's talk about maybe the more um, touchy-feely or emotional yeah. intelligence side of things.
0: I'm going to answer that by telling you a story from decades ago, and I think you'll understand the analogy. When I was in my final months of, of getting my business masters, my MBA, in that class of maybe 160 cohort, you know, that was at that size. We thought we were such hot shit. I mean, you know, you're finishing and you know everything and you're ready to go and just take on the world. And in comes this guy and he says, he looks up, he was a guest lecturer, but usually a guest lecturer, you know, gets some slides up or starts talking about a presentation about the company they work for. He was different. He walked in, no slides, no PowerPoint, nothing. He just walked around and looked at all of us and he said, you guys think you're so damn good, don't you? Well, when you walk out of here, the real world is going to kick the living shit out of you, and you won't know what hit you. It'll be brutal. About a third of you will be a complete failure. Another third will be spinning their wheels a decade from now, and the other third will be phenomenal successes. Too too bad about the other two-thirds, but I'm just telling you the truth. And I looked down at him, and I thought, what an asshole. What he claimed in that presentation was that experience is very important in life and that, in fact, intuition is just experience distilled. The longer you're at something, the better your intuition is about businesses and people. And I thought, what a load of crap. Today I'm that guy. I'm that guy walking in those MBA classes at Harvard and MIT, looking at them and saying, you know nothing and the real world's going to kick the living shit out of you. And I can't believe this has happened to me. But he was absolutely right. And so today, with all of the experiences I've had, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all of the horrible things that have happened in the businesses I've invested in and all the euphoric ones and the amazing outcomes, that experience is distilled to intuition. I can sit in a room with somebody for 15 minutes and know if I've got a winner or not. And 99% of the time, I'm right. So I listen to the gut and I listen to the person, I listen to the plan. I know it's going to work or it isn't, I just know. I'm that good. But he was right. The only way to get to where I am today is having spent 30 years doing it. It's the only way you can do it. You can't can't buy it. And so I really, really believe that about entrepreneurs and investing in them and supporting them. You need the experience that the road traveled gives you. That turns into a wish intuition and that becomes a very powerful tool. How much of your success, let's just lump it in one bulk statement.
1: Um, some of your top successes, how much of that you think is luck? Now, you know, you could say, I made my own luck, that's yeah, fair. Yeah. And I think you're right. You do make your own luck. Yeah. But like sometimes like come on, Mark Cuban, right place, right time, yeah. right? Cashed out. That was lucky. Don't yeah. you think? Timing. He's a very smart
0: guy. Yeah, no, and, and he's gone on to do it, and we all have. We've all, had, we've all had, you need the first big one that gives you the capital to do the next 10. That's what I've learned. You know, somebody told me once, way on in the beginning, when I was in the second year of, you know, my, my software venture, he said, the first 5 million is impossible. It's just impossible. The next 5 to get to 10 is really hard. Getting to 25 is pretty easy after you get to 10. And the rest, he was right. The first five was hell. It was hell. The second five was hell. Then it got a lot easier because by then you've got, you're, you're deploying capital with an understanding of how hard it was to make the first 5 million. And I tell my entrepreneurs that. In America, if you can acquire five million dollars of wealth and have it sitting in a bank, you can live off that for the rest of your life. It, it's 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 a, a great thing to have happen. But in, in acquiring it, if you're trying to, if we're talking numbers now, you're just in the middle of the game at your first five million. You don't want to stop there. You want to what it lets you do is take capital to invest in a whole lot of other ventures that you're maybe an operator in or maybe an investor in, or both. And my path has been you know, the big exit of the learning company Mattel. There were nine of us, it was a $4.2 billion transaction. That set me up for a lot of different things of which I had great successes and crazy failures, losing millions of dollars on some, making millions on others. And what I've learned is, goes back to what you just said, you need a little luck. So if you're gonna have a portfolio, if you're gonna be an investor like I am, you need a lot of companies because the ones you think are gonna be your best winners never are. And the ones that you think are going to be dogs that, you know, maybe you're taking a huge risk and end up being fantastic successes. And, and the path that this occurs on is very serendipitous. Markets change, economics change, products change. Poo-poo happens. Mm-hmm. And the outcome of that is never known until you get to the end of the road. And so I consider myself a pretty good investor today. I have a very good track record. I use the intuition that I learned from that guest lecturer as my guiding light. I have a huge team that I work with that does all the due diligence. But ultimately, when I deploy the capital, you know, it's just a gut feeling. And I say to the guys, okay, great analysis, great spreadsheets. I want to sleep on it. I do that every week. I mean, we're putting money to work all the time. Whether it's a second or third round or a new deal, sometimes it feels right. Sometimes it doesn't. And when I have to tell an entrepreneur I'm not going to invest, and they say, "Why not?" I've got a feeling. That's
1: my answer. So I want to go back. Uh, I don't really feel like I got exactly the answer yeah. that I wanted out of you uh, on the sort of the emotional intelligence side. I want to. You, know, you talked about lifestyle, and you talked about um, how your business transactions and your your experiences have made you wiser and smarter, better investor, then you're more intuitive about what's going to be successful or not. But I want to know if, if, you know, money corrupts, right? Because I don't have $50 million sitting in my bank account or Mm -hmm. even $10 million. Um, Maybe someday. But I think a lot of people are are curious about that because um, I don't believe that money is the root of evil, right? I think that maybe if you're, only focus is on monetary things or you know whatever that 's where you start to get corrupted, but I want to talk about how you know this the emotional side of success has affected you or not affected you or how you 've dealt with it i 'm sure it's something that you have evolved with or grappled
0: with. Can you talk about that a little bit it 's a really good question, and you know i i 'm often asked about it you know I go back um, when I had none. And, Back to when I was ma- getting married, I couldn't afford uh, a reception or a dinner for anybody. We had no money, we had nothing. And so, um, and I know, you know, for certainty that this woman I've been with now for over 30 years knew she was buying into the hope and a promise that we'd figure this thing out because we wanted to have some kids and they're expensive. But we had no money. And what I learned at that time in terms of how it forms a person, you know, The fear of failure, in my view, in the the pursuit of any entrepreneur's path is perhaps the most important motivator they've got. Because they start their journey saying, I'm going to quit the security of a salary. And I always tell my entrepreneurs, a salary is the drug they give you when they want you to forget about your dreams. Because it's very easy to stay in that world where somebody is mitigating your risk. You just have to perform certain tasks, do them well for a third of your day and they will feed you a salary and and you don't have to think about anything else and that for a lot of people works And there's nothing wrong with that it's very noble great employees are extremely valuable to build enterprises But when you leave that path and you put at risk income that you need to eat with you're going on a different journey and and that fear of failure is an extremely motivating factor you know you ask any entrepreneur about the journey, and they're going to tell you the dark moments when they faced the abyss and they didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that gives a, a tremendous amount of emotional uh, fiber to a person. And, and you know, I think you it manifests itself in a certain amount of confidence over time. But money can corrupt people if that's all they care about. I, I don't need more money. I need more time. And that's why I really care about how I, I spend my time. And the whole point is when you when you look at Your day, and this is how it manifests itself later in life. No matter what that bogey is for you, I, I don't know what amount people consider, you know, enough. You know, there's a point where you just can't even spend it, so it doesn't, because it's making more for you every day in interest and your other investments. But you start to ask yourself, the real benefit of having it is that you map out next week. I know what I'm doing next week. The schedule fills up, things get booked, I look at it on the calendar and I call back to the people that coordinate my week and places I'm going to be in, and I say, why am I going to be in in Mumbai next week? What's the reason for that? And they tell me. Or Manila, or Dubai, or Geneva, whatever. And they say, well you're meeting with so-and-so for this deal or that deal, and and if if, if I don't want to be in, in Zurich, I don't have to go to Zurich. Yeah, that's the luxury of having the... Right. And I just say, I'm not going to Zurich. I've changed my mind. And to me, that's the 99% of why it's great to have your own financial independence. Because that goes right back to the store when you're scraping the gum off the floor. There's nobody telling you you have to be in Zurich. You don't have to be anywhere. You can be wherever you want. And that is why it's worth it. Because that's a form of freedom that you can't get any other way.
1: Yeah. Well, you're preaching to the choir here and, and I completely agree. That's why I jumped
0: ship from my you know corporate sure. job at the studio
1: 10 well, years ago. Well, you're an
0: entrepreneur because you were personally motivated to stop living that way.
1: Yeah. But can you talk about the dark side? Because I think there is a dark side, you know, uh, mo' money, more problems, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How does one, and I think maybe people watching will want to know sort of like, how do we navigate those choppy waters? Because it's not just it's not so simple, right? When success starts to come, no, you start being less kind to the hospitality people or the, you know, the person who brings you your food. You know, right. you used to be the um, the bottle washer or the the gum scraper, <laughs> and now you're the owner. So, like, how do you navigate around um, staying grounded, staying a human being, and not
0: being becoming such a rich jerk? That's a great question. Perhaps your best one of the day, in some ways, because. It's easy to slide into that rich, rich jerk mode. The answer is you have to have respect for people, for their own talents, for who they are, what they do. The guy that delivers your breakfast in the morning, you, you should respect him like anybody, like the like, the, like Warren Buffett. It's this, It doesn't matter. He's a person. He's trying to do his job. She's trying to do her job. They deserve your respect. If if you can't give them respect and you treat them without respect, you have become an asshole. And you deserve, in my view, the karma that comes with that. I believe there is karma. And I think if you're a real asshole, you're going to pay the price one day. That's why I have to get back. That's why I have to treat people with respect. And you have to remember that, that there's always a weighing weighing in during your life. And karma is how that gets settled. The other big area that it manifests itself as a huge problem is in in children. If you de-risk your children's lives, you are
1: giving them a disease. So you're talking about kind of how Bill Gates and Warren Buffett uh, deal with their yeah. children. They, they say you get nothing. You're entitled to nothing. Um, what is your outlook on you know, the, the success you've had? Uh, do your children feel entitled to it? Do they know they're getting something, nothing, or all of it? Well,
0: here's, here's the lesson I learned. When I was graduating from college, my mother said to me, I'm coming to the graduation. I've got the great news. I'm coming. I want to see this happen. But no more checks. That's it. I've paid from birth to last day of college. You're on your own. And I said, Mom, I don't have a job. I have no money. you know. And she said, the dead bird under the nest never learns how to fly. And I said, Mom, that's a great poem, but I need some cash. And <laughs> she said, no. And it was a very traumatic couple of years after that, trying to find my way, and I had no money. And I was really in a bad, bad shape. But the whole point was she felt that The journey of you know paying for right to the end of college was on her back and that she had done that and now it was my turn to launch and go on that was such a powerful experience for me that I've now mandated that into my family trust which is a generational skipping trust that provides from children born to future generations even out of wedlock I don't care it's a full freight pay from birth to last day of college and then they get this nothing. Now, when I put the structure in place on my first liquidity event was around the sale of the learning company. I walked across the river to Cambridge, met with the lawyers and said, I want to structure this thing this way. And um, they said, you sure? I said, I've talked to my wife about it. We had, you know, when we were married, we had no money. Um, And I went back and explained the structure to my kids after I'd locked and loaded it. They were four and six. (laughs) (laughs) Decades later, Well, you know, I guess 12 years later, my son was doing very poorly in high school, I think at around grade 10, he was not gonna get to college. And, and uh, he came to me and said, dad, walk me through the trust deal again. I said, sure, Trevor, it's very easy. Here's how it works. If mom and I go out, go out to a movie tonight, we get run over. Um, it's, you're gonna be okay because you're gonna be taken care of right to finish high school because it doesn't look like you have to worry about college. And then he said, well, what happens after that? I said, you're on your own, you get nothing. He said, I get nothing? I said, yeah, the dead bird under the nest never learns how to fly, and he said, that sucks. But I said, why don't you take advantage of the runway you've got You're in grade 10? It's full freight. Now he's in third year electrical engineering. Maybe that was the night that it hit him, where the fear of the unknown mm-hmm. you know, could be avoided by finding a path, and he's used it, and he's spent a lot of money getting his education, but I'm sure... When he graduates, so he'll have a job, and I told him, if you want to start a company, don't come to me. I'm expensive. I'll want a royalty. <laughs> Go out there and raise some dough and come to me later for second-round financing or something. Because I really think, you know, that's the whole point of, of helping, you know, having everything taken care of from birth to last day of college is a good deal for anybody. Yeah. But I'm not giving them a de-risked life, and I think that's another, you know, issue you have to deal with. And so that money will sit in trust and just roll on and long after I'm gone and do whatever it does. I won't care, I'll be dead. Let's talk about the F word.
1: Let's talk about failure. Yeah. A lot of people try to avoid it at all costs. We've talked a little bit about your experience and how you, you know, the only way you got intuition or wisdom was through making mistakes, it sounds like. Um, What can you identify as maybe one of your greatest failures that you got wrong in order to get something right? In other words, it was a huge lesson, a turning point.
0: Well, I had a, a deal that I'd invested millions in. It was one of my ideas, and they're not always, they don't always work, that's just the nature. This had to do with um, multiplayer online gaming, and I won't mention which telco it was, but a very, very large telco I was dealing with at the CEO level, and we were going to roll this thing out. Um, you know, I, the great thing about having a, a big success is you get access to a lot of interesting entrepreneurs. They all return your call. And so I called up the head of the, you know, the world's largest telco and said, look, I want to do this deal." Give me a team of engineers. I'll bring a team of entrepreneurs into play. I'll fund it, and uh, I'll give you a third of the equity in it. And, and what I what I learned about that experience is, is when you want to build an entrepreneurial um, change agent inside a giant company, any giant company, telco in this case, you just can't go ramming through like a bull in a china shop because you're dealing with committees of twenty people. Yeah, and. I spent millions of dollars trying to fight the, the natural tendency of a, of a large company not to do things outside of their comfort zone, and I lost a lot of money doing that. That was a very important lesson. I, had I done it where it was a, where skunks worked, that I would started myself till I got it operational and then sold it to a telco, that would have been a better outcome. That cost me a lot. It was millions. I lost millions on that, and that was a failure. But what I look for when, when I, you know, I've had. Luckily, great successes have paid for all those failures. You, as long as you have more successes than failures, it, the path kind of works out. And so I paid for it through some other deal that was very successful.
1: Can I try and summarize the advice you just kind of gave, which sounds like you're saying if you want to have you know, any amount of success, it's far more difficult to try and go in and retrofit your idea to an existing organization. It's better just to maybe start from scratch. Right build it up yourself you know, with your own people, your own ideas, even if it's small and scrappy at first. Yeah. That's much easier than trying to go against the current of something that's already existing. You know, you've got maybe personalities, culture, you know, that's true.
0: consensus. But there's another very important element. You have to put a time frame on it because as an entrepreneur, you've only got so much time. My role is 36 months. After 30 months of doing that, realizing it was going to fail, having invested millions of dollars, I took it behind the barn and I shot it. I fired everybody, I closed it down, I stopped it completely because I needed to move on to my next thing, whatever that was going to be. Because the worst mistake you can make as an entrepreneur is not to admit your failures and continue to try and resuscitate them with yours and other people's capital, even though the idea has no merit, for whatever reason, whatever reason it is. Well, that's what I was going to ask too. So 30 months is your time frame? Th- three years is the
1: number. Okay, so. But you start, after 30 months, you know. You know, yeah. um, but what are some of those metrics? Is it just about sales and revenue? Is it just about the dollars and cents on the P&L? Or are there other success metrics that we should be looking for? I mean, Bezos is a great example. Yeah. Amazon's unprofitable for 10 plus years. And now he's the richest
0: guy on the planet. But he had tremendous revenue growth. The, the metrics you look for is a, is the idea getting traction with the customers. Yeah, that's what I want to get to. Is yeah. like, what, are, what are we? What should we be looking for in, in well, the gr- metrics? Great entrepreneurial you know endeavors. Great ideas solve problems for people. Bezos saves time. The reason I use his platform is to save time. I get really low cost products and I don't have to do anything to get them. They come to me. It's that simple. Because it it, it has such merit in that respect, it had tremendous traction as measured by the number of people that use the platform. It's very easy to see when an idea is working and when it isn't. Half the time with my entrepreneurs I have to I get all the numbers every quarter. I don't talk to the ones that are having phenomenal success. They don't need me to cheerlead them. I talk to the ones where clearly it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's not working, and I know why it isn't working. You know, I I mean, it just, I've done so many deals that I now understand the cogs of why things don't work. And I mean, look, you know, it sounds arrogant. I don't care, it's true. And so I call them up and say, look, we have flat growth here. We have no traction. We continue to spend more and more money trying to get momentum and nothing's happening maybe people don't want this product or service. No, 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 that can't be true, you know, because think about it, you're telling them that it's over. And the going concern, concern test that occur in the fourth quarter of every year is an option for me, the investor, if I have a controlled position through debt or equity, to basically take that idea behind the bar and shoot it and let its DNA help the other, because it's a tax loss, that gets capital, back into the ideas that do have merit, that deserve to grow. And so I'm always harvesting the death and destruction of, of which is a natural Darwinian force in business, and helping the ones that have shown life, that the, the, their cells are splitting, they're growing. And you know, the, it's very traumatic, these processes, there's tears. You know, I go to sleep like that every night. I don't, yeah. I don't get emotionally involved in that stuff. This is the Darwinian force of business. You either embrace it and understand it, but you don't get emotionally involved in it. Shutting down a business as a tax loss, after it's over, I don't even think about it again. It's over, done, it's a loser, it's a dog, it's over. And something great will come from that entrepreneur, from the sting of failure, that motivates them to go do it again, and I'll back them then. Like, a dog is a dog, it's a bad idea. Embrace the failure, embrace the loss. Embrace the fact that you have to take old yellow behind the barn and shoot it. And I'm happy to shoot it with you and then go to my cellar, get a $2,000 bottle of wine, drink it and say, never think about that deal again. Only remember the lessons of why it failed. But you don't have to you know, revel in the failure. You just gotta get motivated by the sting of failure and go on and do something new. That's the lesson. And you know, people, oh my goodness, we can't let this die. It's been my dream forever. I don't give a shit. It's a loser. Don't get romantic about it. No, it's a dog. Like, 80% of startups in America fail. What are you going to cry about every one? You'd spend your whole day in tears. How often are you pivoting? You know, pivoting is kind of a buzzy word, but like, um, is it that binary? It's either live or die. Is there any pivoting happening? Oh yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a. You bring up a very interesting point about businesses that actually achieve success. Let's say, and I see this manifest itself in the three to five million dollar revenue, which generally happens in a good idea in the second year. It's getting traction. Things are moving. So the most powerful aspect of an entrepreneur at the beginning of their journey, when they're starting the business, is their myopic vision of what they want to do and. They don't listen to anybody that is telling them it's not gonna work. They don't listen to naysayers. They don't even listen to advice. They have a vision and that is the motivation that gets them working 25 hours a day, eight days a week. Very important. Then they get traction. They get their first one or two or three million in sales. Now this is where the transition occurs between a great CEO and one that's going to fail because they can't pivot. There comes a point where that strength that was your myopic vision and shutting out all the noise becomes your greatest weakness because you don't listen to the market. The minute you get to 3 million, sometimes it's sooner, you gotta put your ear to the rail to hear the train ripping down at you. That's the market. Things are changing, competitors are changing, products are changing, markets are changing, everything's changing. And you have to assimilate the data, listen to it every day, and there's three constituencies you have. Your customers, you know, the business with the customers, your employees who are at the front line and see all the mistakes you're making every day. You have to listen to them, and you have to listen to your investors, all three. You have to assimilate the data, and when the time comes, you have to pivot. If you can't pivot, you will fail. And you're going to fail between three and five million. I see it all the time. And the reason I do control deals in a lot of companies when I think there's risk in the entrepreneur, the man or woman, that may or may not have the ability to listen, and I'm assessing it from my own gut, is I'm going to put a structure in place that if they don't get there, if they can't pivot, and I recognize it, and they're a partner of mine, either through the debt I own or you know the control of the equity I own, I'm going to say to them, look, you've done something incredible, you've started a successful business, but you are not the right person to take it to the next level. So I'm gonna kick you up to the board. I'm gonna make you maybe the chairman, but you're not gonna run this company anymore. I'm gonna find someone who can listen and can pivot that will make you very wealthy because you still have your equity. Some people can handle that, some people can't.